Hello and welcome to episode 150 of Cambro Conversations with your host Colin Campbell and in today's conversation to mark the 150th episode I am joined by Pete Matthew. Pete is a financial planner, podcaster, YouTuber and the CEO of Jackson's Wealth Management. When I was thinking of how best to mark the milestone of 150, Pete was somebody that sprung immediately to mind as somebody that I have tremendous respect for and have gained a tremendous amount of knowledge from on all things personal finance. During this episode, you will hear about Pete going from flipping burgers in McDonald's to becoming the managing director of Jackson's Wealth Management. Pete followed a fairly classic career path up until the point when he started messing around with a video camera and creating online content. I've titled this episode The Podfather of UK Personal Finance, and that's for good reason. Pete has shared countless hours of in-depth content on his Meaningful Money podcast and YouTube channel in the last decade. During the conversation, expect to learn about Pete's background and story, the three steps to financial success, including insight into budgeting, debt, insuring against disaster, paying yourself first, and how to invest wisely. I get really into the nitty gritty and I benefit from Pete's expertise on striking the balance between pensions and ISA payments, the tax considerations and how to manage your pension with your employer. As part of this conversation, you will also hear about multi-asset funds and what to look for in your initial choices to have a light touch, relatively low admin approach to investing in personal finance. Many of you know I will talk about dollar cost averaging. Pete correctly changes my approach to pound cost averaging based on the fact that I'm based in the UK and there's so much more within this episode you're going to love too. Finally I ask about risk appetite and tolerance as well as the biggest financial mistakes that Pete has seen being made and the answers that he gives might actually surprise you when it comes to choices. Today's podcast is sponsored and supported by previous podcast guest, Mike Samuels. Mike is a copywriter who's been responsible for over $170 million in online sales for his clients. And now he teaches others to become what he calls coffee shop copywriters. He's personally guided over 300 people now to the point where they're now earning a highly paid living, highly respected as copywriters earning up to £350 per hour and getting paid multiple times for the same piece of copywriting work. However, Mike is very clear that copywriting is not an easy way to riches. Rather, it's a skill that requires practice and repetition. However, he has simplified this process and truly believes that anyone who does love writing and has the desire to earn a living from writing wherever they are in the world and selling it onto big businesses can do just that. He's put together a selection of free templates to get you started, along with access to a free masterclass that allows you to understand how best to use these templates, but also to identify how you can approach and sign up your first high-paying client. If this is something that interests you and you like the idea of earning a great living from your laptop while mastering an in-demand skill that clients around the world will pay for, you can head to the link in the show notes, which is www.thefreedomkickstarter.com forward slash 500 templates to grab your templates and sign up for a free class. Now, you may notice that my voice is a little bit more nasal than normal. Thankfully, at the time when I recorded this episode with Pete a couple of weeks ago, I was uh, crystal clear, so you won't have to suffer my nasal tones. But all I'll say before the music plays is thank you so much for supporting the show on the way to this 150th episode milestone. The ratings, the shares, the support that you show, it really, it really makes the show what it is in terms of the engagement and allows me to have fascinating conversations with fascinating individuals like Pete. So if you are enjoying this one, please do share it to your Instagram story, pop into the WhatsApp group chat, blast it out there so that more people can listen to the show and enjoy it. And the music's going to play just now and you're going to hear it from the podfather of UK personal finance, Mr. Pete Matthew. Pete Matthew, welcome to Canberra Conversations. This is a uh, another another podcast to add to the the belt for you, the notches on the on the bedpost. <laughs> yeah, there've been few. Thanks for inviting me, Colin. It's great to be here, and uh, we're opposite ends of the country, are we? Yeah, that's it. We've uh, we've we've managed to make the, the the power of Zoom or Streamyard in this case to do wonders for us. As I'm yeah. sure we were talking about before we hit record that. It's a platform that's enabled us to create so much content over the years, and and while yep. there's a, a few bugs and uh, a, a few sore points along the way, it, it nine times out of ten that does the job for us. Yeah, yeah, it's brilliant. It's uh, an amazing time to be alive. Exactly that. I was going to introduce you as the the Podfather of UK Personal Finance. <laughs> How does that title sit with you? It's been said. <laughs> it's been said before. I'm very lucky to be an early adopter. Uh, you know, more luck than judgment, absolutely. But yeah, I've been podcasting since 2012 and on YouTube since 2010. 
So, yeah, it's amazing, really. Yeah. <laughs> I, had, I had brown hair when I started. <laughs> I should say <laughs> I went gray before my I went gray before my 35th birthday, right? I'm only 47. <laughs> so people think, but, oh, God, you're really old. You must be 60. They do say, they do say when hair goes gray, it means it's staying. So maybe it's, it, it's less likely to fall out and go bald than uh, if it's gone gray. <laughs> it's pretty thin, but let's, I'll, uh, I'll take that. Let's hope so. But life before meaningful money is something that, that, that interests me as well, because when I speak to a guest that's an expert in their area, they've, they've delved really deep into a subject and they've iterated on it and they've become what I would call almost a master of their craft. Some people are a little bit intimidated. They're like, oh, were they just born like that? Was it, was it luck? Was it nature? Was it nurture? What, 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 what was happening before that? So I guess let's go back to, to life before meaningful money, please. Uh, great question. Because, yeah, where the sort of some of our experiences and our parenting and our nurturing, all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, you know, um, I am in, in many ways a, a classic textbook financial advisor. So most people don't wake up you know, on their 18th birthday and realize that they want to be a financial advisor for their life. So, um, you know, I failed my degree, hated it. I did an electronics degree in Cardiff, uh, failed my second year. And by that time I'd met my wife, wanted to get married. Um, so we're a bit of a whirlwind romance, uh, engaged in eight months and married in 14. So we got married. She was a nurse. Um, and because I didn't have a degree and uh, all many prospects, I got a job. Well, I'd already been flipping burgers part-time for McDonald's and went into management with them, where I learned a lot, actually. Um, you know, I mean, they have absolutely refined the whole principle of process uh, to the nth degree. Uh, learned a lot. I certainly learned a lot about managing people because I was second in command of a restaurant with 90-odd staff. So I learned a lot about uh, sort of managing people and... Uh, balancing shifts and rotors and all that sort of stuff. Um, but as I said, my wife was a nurse. She was a pediatric intensive care nurse, and I was working stupid shifts at MACD's. And we just, th those hours were not compatible for a newly married couple. So I got home at five in the morning after a late shift to a, a note on the bottom of the stairs that said, Pete, we have uh, spent the evening together 10 times in the last 48 days or something like that something's got to change exclamation mark so she'd been at home stewing while i was working um that we weren't spending enough time together and given that she was the one with a good job and a good degree and i was kind of defaulting my way through life um i had to find something else and i had a friend who worked for the co-op insurance society so that was back in the days of financial services where you had uh men usually men uh collecting insurance premiums on the door every four weeks a sort of archaic uh, method of working called industrial branch insurance, really from the days when people didn't have bank accounts. So they would be paid in cash. They would put aside 50p or whatever, or a pound to pay the insurance man every four weeks. And he would come and call on the door. So I did that, hated it, but I'd love it now. Cause <laughs> what it, what it did was just get me out there talking. Of course it was a sales role as well. So you'd have to speak to people about sort of uh, whatever was the flavor of the month product that you were supposed to sell. And followed then the classic financial advisor path that was called uh, we would call it tied advice you worked for one company one insurance company or investment company eventually i made the leap to independent advice became an ifa um and by that time my cornish wife this was 2002 my cornish wife and my then sort of two-year-old daughter were feeling the call back to cornwall we'd settled in cardiff where we met uh but um we moved down to cornwall my wife is from senon which is one mile uh from land's end so deep cornwall and we moved down in 2002 it's nearly 20 years ago uh, i got a job down here and eventually came to jackson's in 2005 where i am now as a self-employed advisor but then bought into the company so it's a textbook career path. A lot of sort of advisors who are around my age came in that way. That's not an option for most people now. But what you do is you learn by doing. So obviously, I had to set exams. Back in the co-op, I had to sort of just talk to people, ordinary people, salt of the earth, not wealthy for the most part, but talk to them about saving and, uh, you know, um, uh, providing for their family, even if they were no longer there with life insurance and things like that. And obviously, then you get more technical, you get into the deeper realms. I was going to say, Pete, doing it in understandable terms is probably ah. been a godsend to to the position you're in now where well, you're communicating with hundreds of thousands about it. Well, exactly right, because it is a technical world. So anybody asks what I do now, I'll always say I'm a financial planner. And planning is understanding the system well enough for a start. That's a given. But then being able to 
tease out of people what they want to achieve and then saying, okay, in light of that, what do we need to do now to help you navigate the system and to try and get you from A to B? Because we, the future, which is unknown, <laughs> is under no obligation to comply with our plans, right? So we can only plan now, and then those plans need to be reviewed. So, But explaining that stuff and distilling it is the secret source, really. And I'm blessed with the ability to do that, and I've refined it over many, many years. And one of the benefits of doing a podcast is it forces you to distill your thoughts, Right, yeah, absolutely. so you've got a writing as well. Yeah, oh, very much so. Yeah, yeah. You, you find a lot of people that can communicate and write well are yeah. very easy to understand in all mediums of life, whether that's their topic of choice, like 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 finance, or whether that's other matters that they're able to yeah. to, to talk about as well. So yeah, like you said, uh, a traditional career path for somebody of your generation going into this particular role, like you say, that might not be the the way that people would end up as an IFA nowadays. No, because back in uh, 2013, uh, a bunch of legislation came in called the Retail Distribution Review, and it, it essentially abolished commission, right? That was the crux of what it does. It abolished commission, and it significantly raised the bar of qualification levels for advice, both of which are undeniably good things, right? <laughs> Just cleaned up the industry a great deal. But the classic career path of uh, bank or insurance company uh, into the industry and then making the leap to the sort of light side of independent advice. The banks just couldn't make it work under that regime. So I mean, they laid off tens of thousands of advisors in 2011, 12, 13. Um, and they're only now starting to think maybe we can make it work 10 years on, you know? So uh, there are different ways in now, academies and things like that. But really, it's I, I would say it's, it's almost as difficult to get into this industry as it's ever been, which is a real shame because there's a massive need, I think. For competent ones as well. Well, yeah, and young ones, God's sake. You know, I mean, I used to be a young advisor. <laughs> now I'm 47. I'm approaching the sort of average age of advisors. And it, obviously, they're still overwhelmingly male, overwhelmingly white. There isn't the diversity. It's better than it's ever been, but don't get me wrong, but there isn't the diversity that the industry needs for people of all uh, types to be able to do this stuff and help people. Because money is really important, right? We all have to deal with it. So we need people who can help folks. It certainly is. And you mentioned young people there, and I was sharing with you before uh, when we were getting organized for this, that my demographics, typically the vast majority are between 25 to 35. Yeah. Now, of course, there's there's 10% either side of that and and then there'll be all, the old outlier as well but i wonder what was what was pete matthew like growing up with money before you kind of were focused on financial side of things in terms of advising people of their own finances well my wife saved me financially i was shocking as a student i literally used to close my eyes when i went to a cash machine i had no idea what i had in there whether i would it would give me any money i remember writing several times to my bank manager literally writing letters as a student to have my overdraft extended which they did which was i think criminal <laughs> sometimes I think if they hadn't done that would have forced the issue a bit but um crunch point for me was when joe and i were engaged we went away for a weekend and it was with my brother and his wife and so they kind of paid for the accommodation but obviously we needed to buy food and drinks and stuff like that and i, I was freaking out because i had literally no money nothing in the bank like three pounds or something like that and i had to basically admit this to the girl who had agreed to marry me in the car on the way to this weekend and she pulled over and i was weeping i just think about <laughs> she's gonna leave me she's never gonna put up with this and money's an emotive topic though pete it really well, is. it is yeah and i was ashamed right because i mean I, I should say i wasn't a financial advisor at this point right i was working at mcdonald's i didn't know anything more than anybody else but I was ashamed and we there's a lot of shame around money I think but there ought not to be because we're not taught how to handle money we either have a, a parent or a guardian or some uh, authority figure who can help us or we happen to have an aptitude for it and we teach ourselves but most of us are not in either of those positions I had no input on money from my own parents and so I mean that was a turning point do you know but she basically taught me uh, how to handle money she ran the family finances for years until it got to the point where you know i was a little bit more disciplined and and but when i was the age and i got married at 22 right i was a child bride <laughs> so between 25 and 35 i started to get my life very much together and of course given what i was then doing for a living not only should financial advisors embody good financial management really we have to be very careful about things like debt and, and stuff like that because if that goes wrong then we're not allowed to practice 
Yeah, no, I, I think that's quite reassuring for a lot of people listening as well. Um, I did a podcast that would have been quite near the start with a gentleman called Andrew Craig. He's written How oh, to yeah. Own the World. I told him um, great book, yeah. Really good book. And the number of messages I received off the back of from people kind of early to mid-20s panicking was unbelievable. And I'd maybe been only been investing and kind of really looking after my finances for about two and a half years up until that point. But people were saying, oh, you sound so much far, further along the journey. Andrew was talking about like all these different things that I don't understand. Yeah, sure. I was thinking, well, you have to have your awakening or turning point at some point to ever turn the corner. It can't just... It, it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't tend to happen as a process it tends to be an event like that where you're like oh, right yeah it's a jolt oh, yeah it's a jolt that changes your direction and if, if that's a podcast fantastic but if, if if it's a if it's a really tough conversation with your partner or a friend or a family member then equally you have to go through that little bit of pain and inertia to then start to get things into order yeah and then you need to know where to go to find decent information and there's a lot of garbage out there so that can be challenging as well but yeah you're dead right very often it's a trigger yeah, exactly, exactly that. And you mentioned good quality information, and I have binged so many of your episodes since discovering oh, you, Pete, which is uh, which is uh, which has been fantastic. But uh, amongst that is also the the Meaningful Money Handbook, and within that, oh, you wrote yeah. about three steps to financial success. What are those three steps? They are, and again, this is talking about distillation, right? Of, of everything, personal finance is a massive subject, but actually, you can distill it down to these three steps. So, one is spend less than you earn. So that covers the whole piece about budgeting, uh, getting out of debt, because obviously if you spend more than you earn, you're going backwards, and that means debt. Uh, so spend less than you earn is step number one. Step number two is to protect against disaster, because we can have great plans, we can start to invest, all that sort of stuff, but the universe sometimes will just pull the rug out, and that might be uh, a long-term illness, car accident, suddenly our entire life, you know, on the, on, in the space of seconds, changes. Uh, loss of a partner, um, catastrophic illness in a child, which suddenly changes everything. You, you know, the world can throw these things at us, and yet our finances need not be completely derailed if there is a decent insurance program in place. So nobody enjoys spending money on insurance, right? <laughs> but it's it's the foundation on which wealth is built. Eventually, also we get to the point where we don't need the insurance anymore because we've got enough assets. But when you're starting out, the last thing you want is to be making great progress and then suddenly bang. You know, you might think, great, I've got 50,000 quid in my ISO. It's taken me five years to get that much. But then you can't work for two years and that money's burned through in less than that, right? And so good insurance program. Uh, so spend less than you earn. Protect against disaster. That's the foundation, really. And then invest wisely, which is the building pit, the bit, right? So that's how to invest, the kind of accounts you should be investing in, the kind of amounts you should be putting away. There's lots of shoulds there. I actually don't like that word very much, but, um, you, you know, just the basics. And actually, that's the sort of sexy bit that people get really excited about, investing, building wealth. Um, but it's actually dead easy, I think. <laughs> I would think that. I've been doing it 25 years. But, you, you know, it, it actually, for most people, it is dead easy. They don't need complexity. And in fact, complexity can be counter uh, counterintuitive. It certainly can. And when it comes to the the three different steps, I think there's so much you can go into within each one. And mm -hmm. we certainly won't spend the entire podcast doing that. But step one, like spend less than you earn. It's like such an unglamorous headline because some people like flinch at it. But it's so vitally important that there is money available and there's a delta between the two to yeah. enable you to do that third step, which everyone seems to get excited by. Like, which stocks am I going to go into? Which funds am I going to yeah. go into? Well, you unfortunately, literally you, yeah. can't have one without the other. Sorry to cut across your coin, but you can't have one without the other. You have to have, you either win money or are given it, which is the exception rather than the rule. But everybody can find money to invest. Say that advisedly, but everybody can, even if it's only a small amount. And that comes from budgeting. It's a healthy habit as well, though, isn't it? Because <laughs> it if, if you if you can start it with, and it could be as little as as, as ten pounds a week or exactly. ten pounds a month, whatever it is, you're actually creating like neurological pathways in your brain and also um, habits within your life in terms of where your thumbs go on your phone, etc. To actually invest on a regular basis, whether that's prompted by like a calendar invite in your in your in your iPhone diary or mm -hmm. or, or, or or some other thing that triggers it to to make sure you do it. I think it's a very healthy thing to do, even if it's something that's like in your eyes, minute. Yeah, exactly. But I, I'm a big fan of automation. So making this stuff as easy as possible. So it, it, budgeting, 
really ought not to take more than half hour a month. And most of it can be done on autopilot um, with just very, very short check-ins throughout the month just to make sure you're generally on track. But I mean, there's a million ways you can do that now with apps and, you know, your challenger banks with, in the banking app even. All that sort of stuff can be done for you um, and just make it easy. And when it comes to investing or building up your emergency fund or even paying down debt if you're at that stage, you do that first. When the money, when your salary comes in, you, you pay that stuff first before you eat right otherwise you know waiting for money to be left at the end of the month is a fool's errand there's never anything at the end of the month <laughs> one of the terms that you use within that uh, section of the book is pay yourself first yes. i guess that's that's the that's the concept that you're teaching there isn't it yeah very much so again uh, not original to me uh, that i first heard that phrase in a book called the automatic millionaire by david bach which is highly recommended actually a few years old now but it's brilliant uh, david bach is a sort of celebrated financial advisor in the us and uh, he tells a story of a very ordinary, he, he was looking out of his office window and a very ordinary car pulls up, a very ordinary looking couple with ordinary clothes on with a carrier bag with documents. And this guy's operating at the top end of financial services, right? And he's like, oh, I don't really think I want to see these people. Look at them, right? Basically judge them based on the car and the carrier bag and the clothes. And they came in and they were extremely wealthy. I mean, extremely wealthy. And in talking to them, it came became apparent that they had done a few things well and consistently. And their message was, we pay ourselves first before we pay our mortgage company, before we pay the electric company and Tesco or whatever, we pay ourselves first. And it's a golden principle uh, and one that I've subsequently picked up on and, and make it a, it's a cornerstone of, of good financial planning, definitely. Terms like that are timeless. And though you're saying, yeah. oh, David's book's a few years old, that will ring true for- Yeah, centuries. As, 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 yeah, exactly that. As, as long as we continue to have that. Mm -hmm. And- Equally, you do quite often see people in that elk where maybe it's not all on show, but you find out that they've got this, uh, like in the US, maybe a 401k or whatever it's called, and here yeah. it'd be an ISA or a pension, yeah. and it's just absolutely packed to the brim because they've just <laughs> followed the process over yeah. and over again. It's been automated, and they've had a, a cornerstone principle in place where, yes, I know that we've got these bills coming up in the month, but my 300, my 400, my 500 pounds must go into this account. It's yeah. non-negotiable. Absolutely. And ironically, the alternative is also true. I've quite often gone to sort of seminars where the, you know, the room's packed with financial advisors and the, the car park is packed with high-end BMWs and Mercedes and Porsche Boxsters and stuff. And I just think, I wonder how many of these are on terrible finance deals, you know? <laughs> and I would rock up in my Seat Ibiza because I just have no interest. I love cars, but I have no interest in paying hundreds of pounds a month for one if I can put that in my my pension you know it's, I mean? really, it's a really interesting conversation like so many people need to think about where their values lie mm -hmm. with that and while you say you quite you you like cars and you have an interest in them i don't have a massive interest in them but if it, i would have to earn like a significantly greater p amount for me to be yeah. comfortable allocating a higher percentage towards it yeah. but then i have friends that absolutely love their cars and are happy for it to be like close yeah. to what they pay for their mortgage or something like that but they make that decision consciously whereas i know That's other people important. like you say where other people will almost definitely have like i don't know a six seven hundred pound a month car lease and and they're they're just like oh that's what i do because then maybe they're keeping yeah. up with the joneses or they're trying Everybody's to satisfy gone. some sort of hedonic uh yeah hedonic desire that they've got that's just continued to adapt and um, on to uh the the second point you made uh pete in terms of insuring against disaster and um, i've spoken before about emergency funds and the importance yeah. of those but this is almost a little bit of a step beyond that in terms of actually like a a, a policy yeah. that would trigger in that case what kind of policies are we talking about here yeah uh the emergency fund is basically the first part of insuring against disaster it's the most immediate thing you can do so i'm absolutely with you on that um really there are three main risks to insure against with one on top of that but the three ones are early death um then being diagnosed with a critical illness which doesn't kill you so cancer heart attack stroke multiple sclerosis motor neuron disease things that take years to kill you if at all um and very often then you have to take time off work. There's pretty intensive treatment. You know, you're going to feel pretty cramped for quite a while. And so a, a critical illness policy can provide a lump sum uh, to provide a, a cash buffer, right? And then the third one is long-term inability to work. But that doesn't have to be something major. It could be uh, chronic back problems. It could be chronic mental health issues. Um you know, chronic fatigue or whatever, these things can stop people working for decades. Um, and, and then what, 
right? So you've got life insurance, critical illness insurance, and what's called income protection insurance. Um, again, you could spend hundreds of pounds a month on these. Nobody wants to do that. But obviously, if you're younger, it's cheaper. So uh, or I actually probably should put those in a slightly different order. I would do them life insurance first if you have significant debt and if you have anybody dependent on you. Secondly, I would do income protection and look at that. And thirdly, if there's any budget left, look at critical illness insurance. The fourth risk you could potentially think about is being made unemployed, being made redundant, but insurance on that is usually barely worth the paper it's written on. So I generally don't include it. That's what your emergency fund is for. I think those are like key considerations that a lot of people wouldn't necessarily think about. And even the emergency fund was something that was new to a lot of my, yeah. my, my audience previously, because we do live a little bit hand to mouth and then you, you get excited yeah. by like, Oh, I'm going to be able to invest. But in the, in the last, in the last two years, I've had probably two to three big instances where I've needed to delve into that. One of them being a roof repair for the flat where yeah. the, we, we have factors in, in Scotland. So mm -hmm. the factor for the development organizes for repairs. And that was a significant sum, but also had my boiler, which was two and a half grand. So you do need your emergency fund there to yeah. respond to emergencies, which, yeah. which, which do happen. And, and I would never have planned for either of those expenses if I hadn't been a bit more financially literate. And what's the alternative? It goes on a credit card, right? So then, I mean, best case scenario, you're paying 0%, but you know, most of us, most of us are in, might be in a position where actually we're only adding to a pre-existing debt. Maybe we've got star, store cards or an overdraft or personal loans and everything. And all that does is drag us further in. So the whole spending less than you earn is it's like you've got to get an emergency fund and then get rid of that bad debt because it's just going to kill you. You're paying somebody else to get wealthy. What's the point of that? You might as well pay yourself. So if you can clear that bad debt and then get to a point where you're not pushed back into debt by stuff outside your control. I mean, that's unbelievable financial freedom comes with that. And it might take a few years to get to that. And you might have to defer the sexy stuff. But what's the point of being invested if suddenly you have to disinvest it all to pay to have your boiler fixed? That's huge, isn't it? Because yeah. if you had to liquidate your assets, particularly at a time period mm -hmm. at the time of recording in uh, in September 2022, when the market is not particularly favorable mm -hmm. and your assets are maybe percentage points down or even just like just ahead above water, you, you've, you've lost a lot of the benefit of investing in the market over a longer period if you have to liquidate and sell to uh, deal with an unexpected cost. Mm hmm yeah last you don't you really don't want to do that if you can help it because not only are you you know then out of the market you miss any recovery you may well want to be actually making a loss in liquidating your assets which is the worst of all worlds and you lose the beauty of the compounding effect which yeah. we're all we're all trying to benefit from by yeah. getting in relatively early and then cashing in in the keeping in the, going in the longer yeah. term yeah dead right the the third the third strand is invest wisely and like you say that's the bit where people get the most excited but yeah. as part of that one of the most frequently asked questions that I've seen in this space is around how we strike the balance between pensions and ISAs so this is very yeah. much for our UK listeners yeah can we just get into that a little bit Peter yeah sure what you what you consider in that space I get asked that all the time <laughs> um, so my answer to that usually is uh, step one is to join your workplace pension assuming you're employed by somebody else just join it right. Join it, and this also assumes that you've got an emergency fund in place, by the way. That's always step one, right? So join your workplace pension. Even if you're paying off debt, join your workplace pension because not to do that is to leave money on the table because your employer has to contribute, and obviously you get to income tax relief as well. So you're getting free money. So not to join or rather to opt out of your workplace pension is idiotic, frankly, because no way in any other circumstances would you turn down free money. The problem, such as it is with pensions, is that you can't touch it for a long time, particularly if you're in your 20s and 30s, right? You've got 40 to 30, 30 to 40 years before you can touch that money, potentially. And so you need to be building wealth outside of pensions as well. So assuming you've joined your workplace pension, that's step one. I would say, ideally, you want to pay enough into your pension to get the maximum employer match. So the default amounts are employee puts in uh, 4%. You get an extra percent tax relief, essentially, and then the employer puts in three. That gives you 8% going in overall of your salary. But if your employer, ask them, they may say, well, do you know what? You put in up to 5% or 6 7%, and we will match it up to this ceiling. If you can do that, again, to do anything else is to leave money on the table. Once that's done, then throw everything else into ISIS. All right? Most of us are not in a position, certainly not in 20s and 30s maybe, uh, to put 20 grand a year away into ISIS. That's quite a lot of money, right? Um, obviously, if you're in a couple, that's 40,000. So um, I would 
chuck everything into ISAs on top of what's in your workplace pension for, I always say, until you get to a figure that you're happy with. Now that's intentionally vague, right? So that might be 10 grand, that might be 50. Um, Happiness but I moves say, as well, doesn't it, Pete? Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. But what you then need to do over time is to uh, switch the balance and start to move more towards pensions. Pensions are significantly the better financially option. No question. I've done a, one of my most popular videos is pension versus ISA. And I go into the maths and people say, well, surely, you know, an ISA is going to be better because it's tax free at the end. Whereas pension is in the large part taxable at the end. But because you get the tax relief going in, the numbers favor pensions and quite significantly, depending on your taxpayer status in retirement. But so I <laughs> wordy answer to your question, Colin, but join the workplace pension put everything else into ISAs until you get to a point where you're really happy with that number in your ISA and then start to switch the balance, right? And move more towards pensions for that longer term win. I think like you say, there's the temptation because it's so far away in the future to think, oh, but I might need to access that money at some point, particularly if they've not got an emergency fund or if they're a little bit worried about payments coming up. But the workplace pension is something that I think is very quite, quite misunderstood because we actually had a presentation in my, in my current employer's um, at like a kind of scheme that we, they, they just launched and so many people who were a lot more mature in, in age than I am were like oh like I'm not sure I'm going to like put in like a percentage of my salary even though there's like a tax benefit that looks good that's a cool part of it but that you were thinking well if you put 5% for argument's sake like you said and the employer would match 5% you've literally doubled your amount going into the market Overnight. for the longer term yeah yeah and that's the power and then you get the compounding on all of that money not just your money uh, and that's the power of pensions. There's nothing like them in the UK financial services. And there is nothing as efficient and as, as capable as a pension for building wealth over the long term. But it is over the long term. So that's why ISAs are the obvious complement. And given that the maximum you can put into a pension is 40 grand a year and the maximum you can put into an ISA is 20. I mean, that's 60 grand. It's five grand a month between those two pots, right? There's very few people anywhere near. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So most people don't need anything other than a pension and an ISA. There is a subset of an ISA called a lifetime ISA, of course, if you haven't bought your first home yet. Um, and that's, but that's, a, it is a subset. It forms part of your 20,000 annual uh, ISA allowance. So uh, you can put 4,000 into a lifetime ISA and you get a government bonus of 1,000 on top of that. So that's definitely worth thinking if you haven't bought your first house. We're going through a period in the corporate world that's called the, the Great Reg Resignation, Pete. I'm sure yeah. you've heard bits and pieces of it. People are moving around a little bit, which means that they will probably have a number of different workplace pensions. There's a little bit of admin work to do to pull those together, but is that something that you see your clients doing as, a, as best practice? Yeah, it really is only a little bit of admin. Uh, it, it's One of my favorite words is to be intentional. You know, it's like when you're talking about car payments, you know, people choose to drive an expensive car and, and they do it for, they've thought it through. They've understood the implications of paying 700 quid a month for their car lease. They've been intentional. And that word is one of my favorites because nothing happens by accident, uh, really. Nothing good happens by accident, very unlikely anyway. You know, no Olympic athlete fell out of bed and landed on the podium, right? You know, there's an awful lot of work and intent went into it. So um, with um, what, what you're talking about with pensions, if you're moving around, if you leave one employer, what happens is your pot kind of detaches from the group scheme and it becomes a personal pension. Uh, we tend to use the word frozen. That's not technically right. It's still invested. It should still grow. But yeah, what happens very often then is people kind of lose track. They forget to... Uh, inform their pension company that they've moved house and so they don't get statements anymore and they forget about it right so be intentional when you leave one employer and join another one you have an option what to do with the scheme from your old employer you either add it into the scheme from your new employer or what most people do certainly that listen to me and what i tend to recommend is that you have a, a personal pension pot of your own it's under your own control you get to choose how it's invested and then just as you move employers and you've got old pensions, just drop them into that pot. It's a very simple thing. Usually you can do that in probably less than five minutes. So you open, assuming your pension is open and you've got a pot over here from, a, from an employer that you've just left, you log on to your pension account and put in the provider, the account number and request transfer and it'll be done in probably two weeks. So it doesn't take a long time at all, but most people don't know that, see? that is the key point that i was wanting to underline most people don't know that and even like it's not something that i'd even consider until my 
current employer was talking more about it. And I was thinking, well, actually, I've worked for three different companies since I graduated from university. Now, that's not Watson Watts at the age of 29, because nowadays it's probably even more than that. However, that means I've probably got three different pensions across yeah. the across the board. And I need to consider where each of those are now allocated towards. And interesting, when you speak about a personal pension pot, you can uh, have a bit more authority on where that's going. Yeah. A lot of us don't have any clue, and I certainly don't have any particular knowledge on where my workplace pensions are actually invested in. I think yeah. a lot of people assume it's in it's in it's in office real estate. A lot of the because <laughs> I, I don't I don't know if you saw this. Yeah, I don't know if you saw this during the pandemic, but people were bemoaning the work from home uh, approach in the kind of hybrid world because what that would maybe mean for pensions in the longer term, because a lot of money is from pensions is in uh, residential and and and, and, and office real estate. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, uh, that is a, a bit of a misunderstanding. A lot of the big DB schemes, so that's final, what we used to call final salary, the DB stands for defined benefit, uh, will have a lot of commercial property in them uh, because of the rental income that comes with that. But generally speaking, that's a misunderstanding. A pension, ignoring DB schemes, which most of us don't have <laughs> anymore, they're mostly the preserve of the public sector now. Um, so if you're in the private sector, a pension is, is just an account. It's literally just a box. What really matters is what's inside the box, which is the funds, the actual investments inside it, right? So that's why I say people really only need three accounts in life. They need a savings account, which has got their emergency fund and any short-term savings, and they need a pension and an ISA, right? So, but a pension and ISA are just two different kinds of boxes with slightly different tax and access rules attached to them. But what really matters and what really builds wealth is what's inside those boxes, the funds you're in. So your workplace scheme, I mean, there's tons of providers, as you can imagine. Um, one thing I would say is if you're under 27 and you're in the nest scheme, you will be in a, a, a terrible default fund. I have no idea why nest do this, but they do. They, I, I think the, the logic is that, well, young people will be inexperienced investors and they don't want to see the value of their pension fall off too early on. It might put them off. And so they, they leave a chunk of it in really low risk investments, like really low, almost cash, right? And that's completely counterintuitive because when you're young, you've got the longest time to compound. So you should be investing very aggressively. You really should be in 100% equities at that age, I think. So be careful of the default fund. Again, it'll take you an hour uh, or maybe even a couple. You might need to do some reading and some research, but look at what investment options are available under your workplace scheme. Um, talk to the pension provider if you can. They won't be able to advise you, but they will be able to interpret some of the information for you. Um, and if in doubt, seek seek advice, you know, but um, you can be intentional about that as well and try to make the best of what you've got. And really the biggest lever in that is how it's invested inside the box. Absolutely. And like you say, the intentionality is something that will probably ring true with a lot of people that choose yeah. to listen to a self-development podcast for <laughs> yeah. an hour a week. They're like, right, okay, well, how do I take ownership of mm -hmm. this area of my life, which albeit I've not quite understood up until this point, but I want to have more clarity on moving forward because it's going to put me in a better position. So I, I love the fact that one, we can make sure that we're opted into that scheme to make sure we know where all those different uh, pots are across the board. And then once you actually have that kind of admin in place, then you can actually look at what's it invested within and, and you can probably uh, steer that within, the, within well, yeah. the insurance provider. Yes, but you probably won't need to do it too much. For the most part, I tend to preach a method of investing that requires you to look at it maybe for half an hour once a year. I'm the world's laziest investor, right? So uh, I tend to sort of preach what I like personally. And I think investing is actually the easy bit. Once you understand the basics, and you only need to understand the basics, unless you've got a real interest in it, in which case you can deep, dive as deep as you want. But I have no interest in investing, despite what I do for a living. And so we got more than 200 million invested for our, our clients here in uh, really very simple, what we call multi-asset index tracking investments where it's largely done for you and that's the that's the best of all worlds because then you can spend your time doing interesting things agreed i'm going to pop a pin in the multi-asset funds for okay. a second we'll definitely come back to that but i wanted to ask about the tax considerations when it comes to isas and pensions as well mm -hmm. because we mentioned you've got 20k tax-free yep. in an isa each year and 40k into a pension what about further down the line when it comes to capital gains or utilizing these funds Okay, so uh, you've got three taxes really that matter. You've got income tax, capital gains tax, and inheritance tax when you die, right? So um, capital gains tax, 
which is only charged if you sell something for a profit, that doesn't apply to either pensions or ISAs at all. So ignore that one. All right. For ISAs, income tax doesn't apply either. Right. You don't get any benefit for putting money into an ISA, the lifetime ISA being a slight exception to that. But for generally in an ISA, you don't get any money going in. You don't get any tax benefit. But at the other end, when you take money out, it's completely tax-free. Right? If you die, it's part of your estate. So there is inheritance tax potentially to pay, but we're not going to worry too much about that. So ISAs are, you don't get any benefit going in, but then there's no tax after that at all, really, to speak of right? in, in your lifetime. With pensions, you get tax relief going in. So they are beneficial to you. There's there's benefit, active tax benefit for you to put money into a pension. It grows entirely free of all taxes in exactly the same way as an ISA does. When you get to the other end with pensions, that's where it gets a bit more complicated. So you can take up to a quarter of your accumulated fund out tax-free. The other three quarters, you can draw it in a myriad different ways, but that other three quarters will be taxed as income. All right? So... It, we most of us know that we have a there are in, income tax bans, so roughly twelve and a half thousand is the sort of start of the basic rate band, and then roughly fifty grand is the start of the higher rate when we start paying forty percent tax. Whatever you draw from your pension, other, after the tax free cash bit, whatever you draw from your pension is just added to your income in that year, and then you get taxed accordingly. But it's had all that tax free growth on all that free money for decades, and that's the magic of pensions. Yeah, beautiful. Well explained as well, Peter. Enjoyed that. When it comes to choosing a, a, a multi-asset fund, which is where you, you mentioned a lot of the people that invest through Jackson are, are, are putting the money uh -huh. towards, what are some of the considerations that we have to have? Right. So let's explain the, the, the term multi-asset fund, right? So multi means lots of different kinds. We all know that, I know. Um, asset it is simply something which can either increase in value, produce an income, or both. That's what an asset is. So everybody understands a house is a bricks and mortar building. And if it's a rental property, not only should it go up in value over time, you will get an income if you've got somebody living in it and paying you rent, right? A share is exactly the same. Share in a company. It should increase in value over time. Depends on how well the company does and market conditions. And if the company is making a profit, you should get a dividend. That's the income, right? So that's all an asset is. So a multi-asset fund is a fund which holds lots of different kinds of assets, not just shares, not just bonds. We'll get into the details of what they are. They're just another kind of bond that's supposed to do, uh, asset that's supposed to do the same thing. It might hold property. It might hold timber, right? Uh, uh, commodities gold. like oil and gas, gold, all that sort of stuff. These are all different kinds of assets. And so a multi-asset fund will hold lots of different kinds. We'll also hold assets around the world, not just in the UK. Andrew Craig again, how to own the world, right? You don't want to be just a UK investor. You want to be a global investor. The fund part of it, <clears throat> most people understand, it's a kind of collective investment. So you, me, and hundreds of thousands of other people, we basically pool our resources into a fund. That gives us buying power and economies of scale to buy lots of other different assets, far more than we could do as individuals, right? So multi-asset fund. <laughs> um, so that being established... To be honest, a lot of funds are multi-asset these days. They will, you, you, there's a lot of funds which are just shares, a lot of funds that are just bonds, that you can get just property funds. But a multi-asset usually will have a ratio between shares and other stuff, right? And they tend to have terms like uh, balanced, adventurous, cautious, conservative, defensive. These kind of words in the name of the funds and that gives you a clue as to what they're trying to do. Defensive, cautious, conservative, generally are not after sort of shoot the lights out growth, whereas adventurous, strategic, these kind of words give you a, a sense of what, of what they're after. They're trying to push the, push the boundaries and, and, and shoot lights out. Higher risk. Exactly. Well, yeah, that's right. And generally speaking, higher risk means higher equity content. So more shares. But higher risk also generally over the longer term means higher return. That link has long been proven over centuries so you know risk is a it's a it's the price of entry for for wealth creation you can't build wealth without risk right but like all risks it's about understanding them and then mitigating them where those risks might take you to an uncomfortable place so really well what we're looking for is a fund with lots of different kinds of stuff in all around the world um, and then with a level of equity content, level of shares that you're comfortable with. Um, 
So this is, it is kind of the deep end, but you can get so many of these where it's literally done for you. And it will say, so, I mean, I've got to be really careful mentioning providers, but everybody's of heard of Vanguard, right? Everybody's heard of them. They basically invented index tracking as a method of investing, super cheap, super available to everybody, right? So they have a bunch of funds called Life Strategy, and they've got 20, 40, 60, 80, and 100% equity. And it couldn't be simpler. LNG, HSBC, Fidelity all have very similar things. Tons of them like that. And so very often it'll be available in your pension or your IC. You just have to look for them. Exactly that. And like you say, Vanguard, as you said, is, 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 just, is just one available option. But as you said, they've got the Life Strategy Fund, which, where it has the split between equities and bonds. And it, it says on the on the description of them, like depending on like your risk tolerance and like yeah. what your timelines are. And yeah, there's there's even tools on there to, to put in that my predicted retirement date is yeah. 2055 or something like that. And it will provide a suggested split between equities and bonds based on that date because you're more likely to be open to higher risk. And in stark contrast to what you were discussing earlier, when you're younger, you should be open to higher risk. So pension funds that are putting you into kind of lower risks, more steady um things when you're under 27 is completely counterintuitive. Totally, it makes no sense. Yeah, yeah, because time scale is a massive factor in risk and return. (laughs) You know, because risk is kind of compressed over longer periods. If you think of risk as a kind of a variance from the mean, so how much an asset, its price, and hence the value of your pot, varies around the mean. The mean should always rise given long enough, right? But what... If, if you're in an asset which might fall 50% in a year, halve in value, but the next year might double in value, that's a pretty wide variance, right? So it can get really exciting, but it can be really scary. <laughs> Sounds and like so, we're talking about crypto here. My, my, well, my, my, my well, Swiss yeah. Borg account. <laughs> yeah, but I've seen shares drop 40%, 50%. So it isn't just the new, more esoteric investments. I wouldn't yet describe crypto as an investment, by the way, because I don't think it's liquid enough, but I think it's definitely got a place. I'm not a crypto denier, <laughs> but um, it's more a gamble than a, than a true investment at this stage, but it's getting there. Yeah, I can understand that perspective based on what, what, you, what you've seen over the years as well. Um, but yeah, the, the multi-asset funds, I think, I think there's so much to take away there in terms of making sure that you've got a diverse spread of exposures in terms of asset class split between equities and bonds and it gives people a little bit of um reassurance is there any way that people could compare one fund with another when they're starting to make this decision yeah um there's a kind of spectrum of how involved you want to get with this stuff right i've actually got a video coming out the week after we record in this coin which is from sort of done for you through to full-on DIY, you're choosing individual stocks, right? There's a kind of spectrum of uh, difficulty and level of interest you need to have. So, you know, if you're looking at your pension and there's there's three dozen or maybe even 300 available funds, obviously the more funds there is, the more sort of uh, filtering you might need to do. But these multi-asset funds reside in a few sectors. So somebody had the bright idea a few years, probably a few decades ago, of creating sectors that basically groups like-minded funds together, right? So the multi-asset funds tend to reside in a few sectors and they're, the clues are in the name. There's called, they're called the, the multi-investment 0 to 35% share sector, 20 to 60%, and then 40 to 85% sectors, right? So you see mixed investment and then, you know, you've got this, these sort of bands, um, and then there's, there's one called flexible as well. And there's even something now called volatility managed. So they, these funds reside in a few of these sectors. So you, maybe on, I don't know, let's say your pensions with Hargreaves Lansdowne or something like that, right? A platform, you can usually filter. And filtering by sector is a really good start. Filtering by cost is another one because true passive multi-asset funds are very low cost, certainly less than 0.3% a year. So you know, you can start to filter. I've, I've got a podcast episode on how to choose a multi-asset fund. So I'll send you the link and maybe you can put it in the notes and that'll help. Yeah, it'll be in the show notes. I, th- I, th- I think that's a, a good flavor for people in terms of that, that decision-making. But to go deeper, yeah, they should uh, they should invest 40 minutes in, a, in another episode as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's one of the most popular episodes of all time, actually, because it's it's quite practical. Oh, and there's understand- a cheat sheet downloadable. Exactly, un- understandably so, because... It's a consideration, like you say, as a very passive investor yourself, once you make that initial choice, it's just a case of the direct debit automatically going into that. And you're like, okay, I'm comfortable with the ones that I've chosen. Let's just let's carry it. on and do something yeah. else. 
Absolutely. Just leave it. Do something else more interesting instead. Yeah. We've talked a little bit around risk and I recently interviewed uh, an options trader called Simon Ree. And uh-huh. while he comes across as very professional, very measured, very clued up, I just do not have the risk tolerance to trade and short stocks and take an option on, on, on a stock. It just doesn't sit that well with my personality type. How can we assess our own risk tolerance? What a question this is. Um, the thing with the kind of world that Simon lives in is that it's potentially, in some cases, it's potentially possible to lose more than you invested. Let that sit in, right? You, you invest a thousand quid, but you lose three thousand. That sucks, right? You know, a minus two hundred percent return. That's not great. So most people can't cope with that. Um, if I can leave one book recommendation with people listening to this, when it comes to investing, read The Simple Path to Wealth by J.L. Collins. I think it's the best personal finance, it's certainly the best investing book I've ever, ever come across. Um, he wrote it for his daughter because at the time he wrote it, she wasn't interested, but he kind of wanted to codify his understanding. And this is he's not a finance guy. He's just invested using passive investments, all the stuff we're kind of talking about. Um, it's American bias, so you've got to filter that a little bit if you're a UK reader, but um, he talks about investing, particularly if you're investing 100% in shares, in equities. He talks about investing, leaving investors bleeding by the side of the road sometimes. Because if you're, you know, if you're investing and you, you're pinning your future on this, and then one year it drops by half, that's rough and that's hard. Now, you can, most of us kind of, in the abstract sense, will accept that risk is the part of investing. It's an essential part. You can't build wealth without risk. But it's all right when it's abstract. But when it's your hard-earned money and you're seeing it fall in value and suddenly you're checking your pot every day, right, and you're watching it go down, I think risk, in essence, is the risk of you making a bad decision at the wrong time. And volatility does that. Seeing your pot fall can make all your abstract sort of supposedly common sense understanding go out the window. I've seen very experienced advisor, um, investors, people who've been building pensions for decades, freak out because their pot's down by 15%. And I would just say, have you not seen this before? And then, yes, yes, we have. What did you do last time? Well, we just wrote it out. So what's different this time? But if you, if you don't have somebody coaching you, that's a large part of my job as a financial advisor. If you don't have somebody coaching you and you're in this vacuum and you're watching your pot fall, there's a massively increased likelihood that you will pull the plug. And talk yourself into it by saying, I'm going to pull out into cash so I don't lose any more. And then I'll go in, I'll go back in into the investments when things settle down. That's the most certain way to destroy your wealth in the future, right? Because you get all the downside because you hang on, hang on, hang on, and then you freak out and bail out. And that's usually when the market turns and you miss all the upside and you go back in when it's too late. <laughs> it's already high again, and then you watch it fall. And so it's basically you just repeat that until you're skinned. So risk, how your question was, how do we assess our own risk tolerance? I think it's a... It, it, abstract understanding of risk is next to useless the the way you do it is you get going and you start investing i always recommend to people if you don't know if you've never invested before start roughly balanced 50 to 60 percent in equities and the rest in other stuff bonds and property or whatever and then see how you get on learn by doing keep an eye on the news and what's going on in the world and see how it impacts your portfolio in the present right but don't make quick decisions just watch might take two or three years, but you will then get an actual physical understanding of how investments and markets move based on what's going on in the world, right? It's pretty tough at the minute. There's lots of negative sentiment going on and it's impacting investments, but it's nothing we haven't seen before. Not really. Some people will say it is, but I don't think it is. So the best way to assess your own risk tolerance is to get started investing. Yes, there are tools which will ask you a bunch of questions and say, hey, you're balanced. What the hell does that mean? I was going I, to ask you because as, a, as an IFA, you have to get your clients to complete, well, a, complete a risk yeah. questionnaire, don't you? But do you know what we ask them? We ask them about their experience and about their understanding. We don't ask them crap questions like how, you know, if you were at a dinner party and you asked your friends about how they would consider your tolerance for investment risk, what would they say? It's a meaningless question, but I've seen questions like that. We basically say, 
do you care about this stuff? How interested are you? Do you read the financial papers? Do you listen to any podcasts? You know, and then have you in the past chosen your own investments? Have you ever sold investments because it went down? So we're asking about experience. And if we get a really, very often we'll get a really inexperienced investor who sort of self-selects as mega adventurous. And we're just like, not on your chance. We're going to dial you right back and start teaching you. Have you, see, have you seen that over your years? Somebody's maybe yeah. come to you and, and said to you, oh yeah, I'm, I'm really I'm really risk tolerant. Like I'm, I'm quite resilient in terms of my mindset. And then something's gone wrong in the market and they've panicked and been on the phone to you calling, giving you grief. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen it. I've also made, as a younger, greener advisor, I've made assumptions. Classic example was a guy, a textbook entrepreneur. So you'd think by definition, he would take risks and had done. He borrowed to build his business, sold it for 6 million quid or something, done very, very well, retired early 50s. Um, we invested a chunk of his money, and it was sort of 2007, early 2007, so the very beginning of what became the financial crisis, and he started to see it fall and fall and fall. And because he wasn't in control, whereas he had been as a business owner, he wasn't in control, he was freaking out, and eventually, in the end, he pulled right? Which is one of my biggest sort of learning points uh, as an advisor, really. I kind of, we obviously asked him all the questions and he answered them as you would expect. And he came out with a reasonable risk tolerance, but he hadn't really invested before. He'd invested entirely in his own business. And so while he's on paper had the risk tolerance, practically he didn't. And so the key now- The component there, Pete, is, is control, isn't it? He yeah, felt comfortable because yeah, yeah. he had control of the risk that he had. So the risk of yeah. the, the huge loan to the bank, he was like, I can control that by growing my business. Yeah. But what he couldn't control was the, the growth of the stocks that he was invested in. Exactly. You can't control what Putin decides to do on any given moment. You can't control what inflation is doing or anything like that. These things are entirely outside our control. The only thing we've got in our control is how much we invest and whether we stay in or not, really. So, you know, the, so risk tolerance is- in abstract is useless you've got to learn by doing and so start but start balanced don't start at the top end it'll freak you out yeah and you can assess how your gut feels when you yeah. see news like russian ukraine war and you see your your s&p 500 go 20 points yeah. minus watch it watch it watch it move and say right okay that's interesting why does what putin's doing over here affect this you know, why is it impacting the energy prices what's the link between inflation and energy and start to just understand this stuff uh, and then you'll be a much more attuned investor and much more uh, uh, able to withstand the media who are just complicit, I think, in this because they only sell the bad stuff. You never, ever hear about billions wiped on to the stock market value, do you? We've had some recent billions wiped on. That's such a, that's such a good point, isn't it? That wouldn't make a good headline <laughs> with it. It wouldn't interest anyone. No, no exactly. But it's, it happens more often than the, the reverse. Yeah, exactly that. It, we've actually got a really recent lesson with March 2020 when we saw things fall like considerably. And of course, the fall that we've had recently has been a little bit longer and you could argue that we're in a, a more prolonged bear market. But the lesson is, if you were accumulating in March 2020 for a couple of months, by the end of 2021, you saw returns that many people hadn't seen for five, ten years yeah, before yeah, that. Certainly, yeah. Now, the lesson there is probably if we adopt the same approach and buy through this particularly difficult period right now. And we continue to pay ourselves first in terms of our investments, yeah. even though energy costs are rising and Wi-Fi costs or yeah, food yeah. and everything like that. Then hopefully when things are better again and in the longer term, you are in a much more secure position and you benefited from buying at the lows of today. Very much so. If you're in your 20s and 30s now, you've probably got between now and when you might want to retire, you've probably got another five to eight significant market events like we're expecting now maybe maybe more i mean markets fall by 10 percent at least once a year on average right um so there's always opportunities but this is obviously this is quite a nasty period right now but yeah if you're still paying yourself first your pound cost averaging in your future self will thank you the maths doesn't lie what are some of the other big financial mistakes that you see being made pete hmm. <laughs> that's a good question um People spending too little in retirement. It's not really for the demographic of this conversation, though, but I see that all the time. People die too rich. Um, people overemphasizing the future at the expense of today. Now, that might sound counterintuitive to everything we've just spoken about, paying yourself first, building wealth for the future. But you don't know whether you've got a future or not. So I'm very big on enjoying today as well, just not at the expense of tomorrow. Um, it's a fine quite balance. quite profound wisdom, isn't it? Because I think you, so. You've spoken to older people who maybe have regrets 
what's the point of dying rich? Jeez. I mean, I spend, it very often happens when the first partner dies, but I spend a lot of time helping widows give their money to their family <laughs> because the, you know, their husband never, you know, I don't want to give money to my kids. You know, they can earn it themselves and all that sort of stuff. But actually, it's just like, well, why pay 40% of it to the tax man? If we can get serious about this now, we've established that you're not going to need all this. So why don't we start dropping it down the generation sooner rather than later? Generational wealth transfer is not done enough, uh, basically. But for folks in the demographic listening to us now, Colin, I think it's it's trying to find the balance between now and the sort of future that we aspire to. Um, for God's sake, don't live like a monk now and go without things. I think you've got to enjoy life now, just not at the expense of tomorrow. I've and tried to bring that balance, Pete. I had somebody on who's from the fire movement. He retired at 35. His name's Steve yeah. Adcock. He's in the US. Uh -huh. But the lifestyle that he led in terms of how thrifty it was for a period was really, really tough and living like a monk to some extent. But also what people sometimes don't remember from his story is that he was earning 120k a year and his wife was earning 120k a year. <laughs> yeah. So so their process was significantly accelerated. Whereas if yeah, I was... want to be whereas if you want to be financially free earning less than six figures a year, it's going to be a much longer time scale. So I, I, I very much appreciate the advice to be conscious of your costs, but don't go too far the other way in terms of almost monk mode. Be intentional. You've got to do what you want to do. Uh, and if that's what you want to achieve, you want to be FI by 35, then it's going to take massive commitment. I just think, well, if you die at 36, that sucks monumentally. And I just, the longer, I mean, I'm 47 now, so I, I've almost sort of earned the right to be a bit reflective. Um, but I just think, do you know what? It, I I think retirement's overrated anyway. I, you know, in the classic sense, I don't ever see myself doing nothing. I can fully see myself earning in some way forever because we live in a time where that's easier than it's ever been. Well, you clearly enjoy creating content, so well, that's yeah, always going to be a medium for you. Why would I stop that? You know, Meaningful Money earns six figures a year in its own right, and I have two people working for me doing that, and it's like, why would I stop if it's fun? I'll stop when it's not fun. <laughs> Right? Not because I reached some arbitrary date. And so at the same time, I'm going to enjoy, I mean, yeah, I pay into pensions. Obviously, of course I do. I pension and I pay into ISIS. But I also, if I see something I'd really like, I'm like, you know, I'm going to get it. <laughs> it's, 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 balance is such an overused and incorrectly used term, but balance in your financial strategy is probably huge as well. So sacrificing to some extent for the greater good but not to an extent that you like if something dreadful happened in the short term you 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 or you have real regret over how things panned out money should help you be happy and that's a obviously very touchy-feely subject and very subjective and different for each of us but i mean i would be miserable if i had to leave a kind of ascetic life in order to achieve some sort of idyllic retirement um you know, I might not be able to get on a plane when I'm 60. I don't know. Hopefully I will, but I might not. I don't know. So they might not when I'm 80. So why wouldn't I do that now while I can, while still paying into pensions and ISIS? So it's, it's, it's hard to strike a balance. I, I think if I had to choose between, if, if I had a, an amount of money that was available and I had to choose rather than split it, which is usually the answer, you know, enjoy some of it now and put some of it away to enjoy in future. But if I had to choose between putting some money to use now for my current enjoyment versus putting it away for my one day enjoyment, I would choose, choose today, every day of the week. Which for a financial advisor, some people would be surprised by, but I think your experience yeah, being would. around death probably... It's pragmatic though, isn't it? <laughs> sure, I mean, yes, people might expect me to say, oh, one day in the future, but for God's sake, most people would do that. That's normal, right? It I is, think. and I think because you spent time around death, I think that would maybe yes, it make is... you consider it. It's certainly a factor. Yeah, definitely. I've seen too many couples striving towards retirement and then one partner dies within six months of getting there. And couples with millions of pounds in investments who plan to spend a quarter of a million quid a year traveling in the best of luxury all around the world or whatever, 150 grand a year. And then they don't go anywhere because they've lost the love of their life and they've got nobody to go with. What the hell's the point in that? You know, enjoy your life now. Enjoy the people with your life now. But assume that you will have to fund that enjoyment for the next 50 years. So put some away for the future as well. Undoubtedly. And 
even if I was to play like devil's advocate on that, we do see that we are in like an instant gratification society where people get everything quite quickly and quite easily now. And I wonder if people are even less prone to saving than before. I think personal credit card debt is an all-time high. Now that might be related to costs, not just desires and people fulfilling yeah. them. But it does yeah. seem that some people have less and less money available. I wonder because we are in this space and you're even further in that space than I am in terms of always talking about personal finance, almost in a bubble where people are more likely to be the people that are tending towards the monk mode rather than the spending mode because of the nature of people's mindset. Yeah, yeah, potentially. Although potentially, but I'm not 100 percent sure that's the case. I, I tend to attract a whole spectrum of people. I tend to attract people in a older demographic than than you. Um, mostly folks in their 40s and 50s who have already built some wealth and are now at the point at which they really are in the optimization mode, right? It's not just about saving as much as you can to a pension nice so they've got other issues that we need to address. I've loved when you've said that people kind of 20 to late 30s are accumulation and then 40 to 50 optimization. I think that's yeah. such a great split. Again, like this is why yeah. I'm such a fan of your content. You, you come Thank up you. with terminology that's very, very helpful. Yeah, I think that's true. It's It's a lot easier... <laughs> when you're younger and yet there's a million pressures i, I hope people are not listening to this thinking what well, for god's sake i'm struggling to pay my energy bill i know life's not easy sometimes and things go in phases you know i was a single income family for the first 20 years of my marriage and so i i understand what it's like to really have to prioritize and sometimes not be able to make a nicer payment because i've i've got to fix something or whatever so I've, I've been there i don't come from wealth i've learned how to do this stuff both professionally and personally so I know it's not always easy, but yeah, in terms of if, if you've got disposable income, it's easiest when you're younger because it's basically just pension, ISA, and 100% equities. Push, push, push. Get as much in as you can while still enjoying your youth. And then, you, because then you start to have more complex things to address. And that's when you get into the optimization phase. Amazing insight and advice throughout this podcast, uh, Pete. I've really enjoyed it. If people want to continue the conversation with you, where should they head towards? Well, uh, the podcast, I mean, we're 460 odd episodes into the podcast. That's, uh, I mean, everything is on meaningfulmoney.tv. I'm having a lot of fun on the YouTube channel again. Kind of started with YouTube and then neglected it for quite a lot of years while I focused on the podcast, which has definitely been the breakout medium for me. But I'm having a lot of fun on YouTube as well. Uh, that's obviously much more bite-sized kind of kind of thing. So meaningfulmoney.tv, everything is there. Um, hit me up on all the usual places and and say hi. Fantastic, Pete. Thank you very much for joining me. And thank you to you, the listener. If you've enjoyed this one, please make sure you have subscribed and you've left a five-star rating on Apple or Spotify. And I'll be back to speak to you all again very, very 